we're going to um, get into our study this morning. We've started off the year, we've started off in January with a series that we've called Normal Christianity. And there's an intention behind this. It's not just because it's resolution season and it's good to kind of introspectively look at life. It's also because our church is experiencing a lot of change and transition. And so this series is a way for us to help you understand why. Um, what, what we've been looking at through this study is basically both the simplicity of the Christian life and the complexity that we naturally bring to it. I've been um, involved with churches in a leadership role for just over a decade now, and I've constantly found in my own understanding and in people I've talked to these inherent barriers that we put in front of us in living the Christian life. And so this is from next week's sermon, but just to illustrate, we have a tendency when we talk about the mission of the church or missionaries or missions to think of something that's over there that's far away, that it's something that these people do for those people. But when you look at the concept biblically, the mission field is right around us, and we are all called to be missionaries in the context of our friends, of our families, of our neighbors, of our own city. On top of that, God does call some to other places to be missionaries, but we're all collectively missionaries together, and so it's not an over there thing. In the same way, uh, and this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, if we were to title the sermon for today, it would be Your Neighbor Lives Right Next Door. Because I find the same problem with, uh, with the commandment that the Bible gives us to love your neighbor. So, uh, if you would, open up to Luke chapter 10 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the back of a pew nearby you that you are welcome to use. Luke is the third gospel you'll find in the New Testament. Of course, you can always check the index at the front of the Bible to help you out. Although, for the most part, we're really just going to focus on five words this morning. I'd like to read the entirety of this passage just to set the context for many of us to refresh our memories. Uh, If you're new to the church, if you're new to Christianity, if you've never heard this parable of Jesus before, it will give you an introduction to it. Um, Let's go ahead and read it. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to remove those barriers, those places uh, where we make this uh, overtly difficult or irrelevant, where we expand it uh, to such wide girth that, uh, that we miss the simplicity of it. I pray as well that you would teach us um, the truth behind these five words, love your neighbor as yourself this morning. We ask that you'd help us to understand it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we ended up in Luke chapter 10 this morning, but the options for looking at love your neighbor as yourself are extensive. We could have turned to the place where we originally find it, the one that the lawyer is quoting from in the book of Leviticus. Yes, that's right. This great, incredible commandment, this summary of our commitment to all of humanity is found first and foremost in the book of Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, If you were to read in that passage, you would discover a paragraph of information of negative commands of things not to do, and the reason given is because we should love our neighbor as ourselves, for, God says, I am the Lord. We could turn to other occasions in the gospel where this same summary of the whole law is given. In Matthew, uh, Jesus is asked, to summarize the law, much like this, and he gives the same answer as the lawyer here. He says there are two commandments. The first, hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God, our Lord is one, and you should love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Truly, he says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. He says, this is the summary. This is the sum total. This explains the entirety of what human life is meant to be. Uh, We could turn to the book of Romans, where Paul has summed up the entirety of the gospel over 12, or excuse me, over 11 chapters. And as he gets into the 13th chapter, as he's applying what life then should look like, he also quotes, quotes this command, and he says prior to it, Oh, no one anything except love. And then he quotes this passage. We could turn to the book of Galatians where he contrasts it, uh, contrasts it with a fleshly life, which a life that's consumed by our own desires, and he says instead we should love our neighbor as ourselves for that fulfills the law. Or we could t- turn to the book of James where in James chapter 2, James says, if you fail at any point to love your neighbor, then you are a lawbreaker and are in need of a savior. If you have not fulfilled The command here, to love your neighbor, then you need Jesus. And if, as a Christian already receiving Jesus, you have not fulfilled your commitment to do this, then you have not yet grown into the fullness of what God has for you. So this is an essential articulation of human responsibility. 
And it's worth just in summary form remembering what's going on here. First, the thing to remember is that this lawyer, and don't think, uh, don't think lawyer in the modern sense. This is lawyer in the Hebrew sense as an, an expert in the Old Testament law. Okay? And so this guy doesn't have court cases that he's overseeing. He's been studying the scriptures. And so he comes, and he comes with intention to test Jesus, specifically to trap Jesus. But Jesus gives the right answer, the same answer that most rabbis in Jesus' day would have given, that this sums up the whole thing. In fact, he doesn't even answer the question. He says, well, how do you read the law? He puts it in the lawyer's mouth. Jesus agrees, though, and affirms these two commandments, and he says, do this and you will live. He says, you've got it right. You understand your responsibility. Go and do it. But there's an inherent problem in that reality, something that Jesus is now trying to teach the lawyer. You see, I love this about Jesus. Here's a guy whose intention is to trap him. Here's a guy whose intentions are negative, and he still sees an opportunity to minister to this person, to teach this person, to reach out and show them their own sense of need. And he says, fine, great, you understand it, go do it. And what does Luke tell us? He says that the man wanting to justify himself said, and who is my neighbor? So even there, his intentions are not merely knowledge-oriented. He doesn't go, a neighbor? What's a neighbor? I have no idea what a neighbor is. How am I going to fulfill this if you don't explain? It says, wanting to justify himself. In other words, he wants to narrow that responsibility to make sure he's making it over the hurdle. He wants to make sure that that definition for the word neighbor is small enough so that he can see himself as righteous, as self-righteous, as qualifying for eternal life, for salvation, for a relationship with God. And so Jesus tells the following parable. And the parable that he tells is about a man just like the lawyer, another Jew who's jumped on a bad highway, robbed and left for dead, and then a Levite sees him, walks by, a priest sees him, walks by, and then a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, comes and, unlike the others who went by, risks his neck, invests personally, takes him with him, uh, you know, sets up a follow-up appointment, pays for everything to be healed, and then most important in this is to notice the transition. What was the question that the lawyer asked? Who is my neighbor? But listen to Jesus' question at the end of the parable. In verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers you see how he turns the question around the man says who is my neighbor and he says who was this man neighbor to right he says neighbor is about who you are and not who they are now by telling this story in terms of a Samaritan he's widening the audience greatly He's saying your neighbor includes even those who aren't like you, even those from another race. This shouldn't be any surprise from Jesus who constantly preached, love your enemies, right? And so he sees the neighbor as a very broad category. And Jesus is not broadening the definition of neighbor, by the way. If you go all the way back to Leviticus 19 and read through the context of this command, you will find that it applies to the foreigner, in the land of Israel, to the sojourner, to the poor, to anyone in context. But the problem is, oftentimes when we look at this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, it's so broad and it's so generic uh, that we believe in it and don't actually do it. 
I'll show you what I mean. I just want to look at the three things that make up this sentence this morning. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we'll start with the concept of neighbor. Now, it's accurate to say here that Jesus is answering a question, where is the outer boundary of neighbor? And that's important. He extends our view and shows that that boundary basically includes anyone in need, right? So your neighbor is anyone you encounter who has a need. There is no who involved as long as the need is necessary. That's the only prerequisite to be neighborly. But it's also worth recognizing here that the word neighbor points us to a front door that's much closer, right? And, and the problem with being so familiar with the saying, to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, is, is that when it remains undefined, it's undefined, right? When we leave it in just this generic, we sometimes forget the particular, And so maybe the final door of neighbor is a man you encounter on the road who you've never met, a total stranger, one from another camp, race, tribe, class, etc. But the closest neighbors are the ones that live right next door. That's what the word means in its definition. You see, one of the problems that we have uh, as human beings is that when we communicate, we have to do so in generalities. So, for example, when we use the word Trinity, we're using it as a shorthand for a concept. But Trinity only barely expresses what we mean by the word. We just use it knowing that everybody's familiar with the concept and they fill in all the blanks. At least that's the hope. That's what makes communication so difficult because every word we use is a metaphor. And so when I say tree, I mean one general idea, but unless I say that tree, unless I point to that tree... You don't know if it's an elm or a pine or a spruce. You don't know if it's got leaves. You don't know if it's a real tree or a painting or a hypothetical tree. All of those things come from context, right? Related to that, oftentimes when we sum up big concepts, we do it in generalities. But I want you to notice even here, it doesn't say love your neighbors as yourself. It says neighbor. Right? Does that mean that you don't have a commitment to all your neighbors, that you can selectively choose the one who best qualifies or you like the most and say, this is my neighbor? Of course not. So why put it in the singular? Why doesn't the Bible say, love your neighbors as yourself? It's because what it's talking about, how we fulfill this command, is never fulfilled in the big and the broad and the general. It's never merely conceptual. It's never merely hypothetical. It's always going to be a touch point, a reference point. Here it comes down to loving a single person. In fact, in the King James and in the New King James, it refers to this man who got robbed as a certain man. Okay, And that's right there in the Greek. We don't translate it because it's a little bit self-evident. If you say a man, you're talking about a certain man. It's, It's built in. If you say man, then you've got the general concept. But as soon as that A is there, it does the purpose. But the King James... And following suit with that, the New King James made it extra explicit. And like the Greek says here, pointed to a certain man. So whenever we fulfill the command to love your neighbor, we do it with a certain individual. There's a reason for this. Okay, As I told you, in the book of Leviticus, God roots this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself in who he is. He says, for I am the Lord. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am Jehovah. That's what God says. In other words, that commandment and Israel's fulfillment of it was supposed to be an evidence of the character of God. And the reality of who God is is always expressed in the particular, not just in generalities. And so, yes, we can recognize, as John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a general term. It's an all-inclusive label. It includes anyone who fits in the box we label the world. But when you look at God's ministry up close, you see it in interaction with one person at a time. Now, God is infinite, the world is complex, and so that one person at a time is happening all the time, right, uh, with many people all at the same time. But nonetheless, when you look at God, he doesn't just go, you know, I really have a heart for humanity. And so he does this big generic gesture for humanity. Instead, we find the God who knows every hair on your head. We, we, we find the God who in the psalm says, formed you specifically and secretly in the womb, you as an individual. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. Yes, he feeds the 5,000, but he also heals this man and that woman. And he has a conversation with this person and this lawyer. And as much as he takes time for the crowds, we also find him constantly dealing with the individual, even as Jesus is dying on the cross. When we could say, I mean, to put it a little bit uh, flippantly, he has better things to do. He takes the time, looks at his mother, and says, John, take care of my mom. Right, right there in the midst of that, he's still thinking at the individual level. And the truth is, if we leave it in the general, we will always be tempted to completely miss it because it's somewhere else. And we'll say, yes, I love my neighbor even though it's not happening here. Or yes, I love my neighbor because that's a good idea, but it has no specific expression. But it's the nature of this word neighbor that it's always in the particular. In this moment, with this individual, in personal relationship. Yes, love your neighbor, as Jesus points to here, involves the stranger who you've never met and just encounter, but how much more then does it involve the person that you know? In fact, even as you look at how this word is used in the rest of the New Testament, when Paul uses it in the book of Romans, and especially when he uses it in the book of Galatians, he's talking about Christians. He says, treat one another well because you should love your neighbor. You see, sometimes we use these categories to distinguish, and so there's the church, your brothers and sisters, your family, your responsibility to them. Also, there's your neighbor. But the concept is so broad, it includes both. When you look at how it's used all the way back in Leviticus 19, you will discover it refers to your family members. Okay, And so it is broad in its category, more broad than we'd even like to recognize, but it's always specific in its application. And there's a related principle to this, okay? And this is why this concept becomes so important, and it's the fact that we don't choose our neighbors. Here, listen to the words of G.K. Chesterton. He puts this well. He says, We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbor. The old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it spoke, not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty 
towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice which is personal or even pleasurable, but we have to love our neighbor because he is there, a much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. You see, if anything's expressed in the concept of neighbor, it's that reality that, uh, that Chesterton points to. We love him because he is there, right? And when we leave it in humanity, as he points out, we become relatively selective and we choose lots of ways to love our neighbor that are inherently pleasurable, things that we like. When you choose your neighbor, you choose the ones that are easier to love. When you love all of humanity, generally you love a specific aspect of humanity and you just use the broad label, okay? So, for example, and this is an extreme example, so forgive me, but the eugenicists, the Aryans, Hitler, all saw what they were doing for the good of humanity. They just delineated humanity in a very narrow sense, right? Everyone else was subhuman, right? Or even humanity in the big sense means we should sacrifice your unhealthy children. We should control, uh, you know, who you give birth to for the sake of humanity, but definitely not for the sake of that individual that they're seeking to sacrifice. Do you see the difference there? The language becomes tremendously important. And this idea that you did not choose means that God's will in this responsibility is already laid out before you. When we answer the question this morning for ourselves, who is our neighbor, that includes, although it's not limited to, the people who live right next door. You didn't choose for them to move in. They have both the benefits and the flaws of being human and you've probably already observed both but when we read love your neighbor as yourself that's who God is talking about your co-workers as I mentioned in the book of Leviticus it refers to an employer and employees and not allowing injustice to be there why because you should love your neighbor and so the neighbors that God has called you to love are the people that you work with or work for or the people who work for you the people you encounter regularly, your baristas, your waiters and waitresses, the ones who you see in the normality of, of your life, your neighborhood. Obviously, all of these people are included, but don't forget they're included as particular individuals. And so it's important here that we recognize that what it looks like to love our neighbor is first and foremost to identify them. And to recognize that, yes, you didn't choose them and you don't get to you have to love them, as Chesterton puts it, because they are there. That's what the phrase means. Now it says, love your neighbor, and then it adds, as yourself. And that's a qualifier. It gives us the length and the distance we need to go in fulfilling the act. In other words, this isn't, who is my neighbor, but how much do I owe them? How much, uh, you know, what does it take to fulfill this command? In what way, right? When we read, love your neighbor as yourself, what we're given is a comparison. We're given an illustration. You should love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Okay? Now, this is important because, because the way that as yourself is always fulfilled is inherently relational. That's already implied by the concept of love, and I would say it's implied by the concept of neighbor, but it's nailed down in this phrase, as yourself, okay? The way we see it going down in Jesus' parable is not, is not 
a new aid fund started for victims of the Jericho Road. It's not uh, a, a city council meeting, you know, for, for some sort of neighborhood watch to be started. It's personal. This man gets off his animal with his hands, which he bloodies. He treats his wounds. He loads him onto his, uh, his animal and takes him to an inn at his own expense, inconveniently, all of these things, okay? What's the difference between those two things? Now, I want to say right up front that, uh, that civil action, I want to say right up front that financial aid, all of those things are good, but they are not the full total. To put it in the words of Martin Luther King from a sermon that I'll reference in just a minute, he says very helpfully, and I appreciate this, he says that laws cannot change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless, right? And so the legal realm that we live in, making sure that laws are rightly created and rightly followed is an important way to love our neighbor, but he goes on to say, but it will not exhaust the duty, and he says what this is talking about is not the uh, not the type of thing that can be legislated. This type of o- obedience is deeper than that. And so you can have rules and still not have love. You can deal with the sins of commission, the offensive things that people do against people, but there will still be the sin of omission, of not actually caring for them, investing in them. He uses this illustration. He says you cannot legislate a father's love for his children. You can make sure that he feeds them and doesn't beat them, but the fullness of love will never be satisfied in that way. But these things are important, but that's not the story that Jesus tells here. It's not the illustration that he gives us. Now, Martin Luther King goes on, and this is in his sermon on this parable. Um, He goes on and he expresses the difference between what he calls pity and what he calls sympathy. And I think nothing expresses this concept as, as yourself as sympathy does. Right? Sympathy means that you align yourself with what's going on in someone else's life. It's inherently relational. It's a connection made between two people. Listen to how he explains it here. He says, True altruism is more than the capacity to pity one in need. It is the capacity to sympathize. Pity may be little more than an impersonal concern which prompts the sending of a material check. But true sympathy is personal concern, which demands the giving of one's soul. Pity may arise out of concern for a big abstraction called humanity. Sympathy grows out of a concern for a certain man, a particular human being, lying needy at life's roadside. Sympathy is feeling with the person in need, his pain, his agony, his burdens. So his point here is, closely resonates with what we read from Chesterton, closely resonates from this concept of not getting caught up in the general. And so, so the, the distinction that I think we need to impress on ourselves this morning it probably is summed up best this way, that when we love our neighbors, it's not just going to be a specific person, but because of that specific person, it's going to be in a specific form. And so it's not enough to start a savings account for humanity. There's something more involved. And the unique needs and the unique personality and the unique circumstances of all of your neighbors is going to lead to a unique act of love in that particular case. 
Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to love in just a second, but I want to point out that that means that what this looks like is inherently thoughtful. It's not thoughtless. It's not automatic. It's not fulfilled by some sort of muscle memory uh, or going through the motions. It's thoughtful and it's sympathetic, not just in the sense of a feeling like I'm bothered that this exists and I want to do something about it, but a feeling like this is a person like me and if I were experiencing these things, right, this is a person like me. That's the biggest problem that the lawyer has here is he wants to define his neighbor as merely people like him so that he's happy to help. As people from his nation, from his tribe, who live up to his moral standards so that he's really supporting himself. And Jesus is kind of tacitly uh, pointing to the fact here that that's a reversal. That humanity itself is enough common ground to love one another, but in that commonality there will always be diversity. And that means sympathy and not merely pity. Now let's look, we've looked at uh, your neighbor, we've looked at as yourself, but now let's look at the word love. Now when it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the reason we have to spend any time talking about this is because love is another abstract and generic term. As a pastor I used to listen to pointed out, that's why we can say I love my wife and I love ice cream sundaes. Right? That's definitely and obviously not the same thing. And so which is it that Jesus means here? Does he mean that we have to have a warm, pleasurable feeling about every human being we encounter? Is that what it means to love humanity? Is, is this just an emotional expression? Clearly not. We don't see any emotion in the man except compassion. Right? It says that he saw the man and he had compassion on him. But biblically, compassion is never merely a feeling. It's always an action spurred on by a motivation. Compassion takes action. And so the love here is, um, is verbal. It's active. It's participatory. But when we, need to under, when we answer the question, what is love? We have, who is my neighbor? How should I love him? And now, what is love? When we answer that question, the best place to look is what the Bible says about love. And in 1 John, as John is writing to his church, he gives us the definition of love. Uh, in fact, let me read it to you. This is in 1 John. First John chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So this is what he says. He says, this is how we know love. This is how we understand it. This is how we articulate and explain love, he says, because Jesus laid down his life. In other words, here, John says, if you want to know what love is, you have to look at the cross. And let's just be a little bit frank this morning. That's an extreme definition. Okay. There are so many other things that could have been pointed to. John knows the parable that Jesus shared. He said, he could have said, by this we know love, that the good Samaritan gave aid. He doesn't. He goes directly to the cross. And even here he says, because of that, because of what Jesus has done, so also we ought to love one another. But he 
doesn't leave it in the abstract. He goes on, listen to what he says next. Just in case we'd all nod along with that and not do anything about it, he says in the next verse, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed or in truth. And so he takes it all the way from the highlight, the definition of you know, giving your life for another person, and he says, but if it, at the smallest level you have food and your brother does not and you close your heart, he says, how is the love of God in you? It's tremendously practical, even though it's huge, even though it's big, even though it's broad. And so when we look at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, what do we learn about love? There's two things I want to point to this morning that are involved in that. We could definitely point to the things that we've already seen. It's not just that Jesus died for humanity, he died for you. And if you see anything in Jesus' life, you see sympathy. Jesus stands at a funeral for his friend Lazarus. He sees Mary and Martha, his sisters, weeping. He knows that he's about to bring Lazarus back to life, and yet it says that Jesus wept. He felt the pain of death. He felt the horror of the reality of the human condition, and he experienced it personally. He became not merely the resolver of our suffering, but a participant in it. Okay? But the two things I want to draw your attention to that are clearly meant in this, in this idea of love, is first, intention. Jesus' death was not accidental. If Jesus had just slipped and fallen off a boat while passing over Galilee and drowned, there would be no Christianity. Christianity puts no value in death itself, even the death of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that Jesus came to die. Just a chapter before Luke 10, when Jesus shares this parable in chapter 9, it says that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you read just a few verses before that, he tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He says, this is what I've come to do. Here's what awaits me in Jerusalem. And he stabilizes his vision. He takes every step towards Jerusalem intentionally, purposefully, with a goal in mind, and that goal is his own death. Love is always intentional. I said earlier that it was thoughtful. That's built into the idea. It means that you have to pursue loving your neighbor. It doesn't actually just happen. It isn't just an overflow of the good person that you are. It's thoughtful. It's considerate. It goes, now, this is who my neighbor is. What does it look like to love them? Right? And then it takes steps in that direction. It's active. Jesus' death was intentional. And then, obviously, on top of that, it was sacrificial. And this is an important addition to make because when we re read love your neighbor as yourself, oftentimes, oftentimes that means that we merely owe humanity bringing them up to the same level as us. And so I have food, I give them food, now we have food. And there's a sense that's, I think, completely accurate and appropriate in that. But love is inherently, by definition, more than that. It's sacrificial. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is thanking the church of Philippi for financially supporting his ministry. And it's a very interesting place to turn because Paul says, I thank you not because I have any need. 
right? He takes the one primary motivation that's always thrown, on a, thrown at us for why we should give, why we should support need. He throws it out the window. He says, frankly, I know how to have a lot and I know how to go hungry. He says, I know the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. He says, as much as I appreciate your gift, without it, God's got me, right? That's what he says. But in that passage, um, he says, but I rejoice that you entered into my suffering. And so what is he saying? He's saying not just that the Philippians who had gave until Paul had not. He's saying something more profound than that. He's saying the Philippians gave until they were in need like Paul, right? He's saying that their gift cost them something. He's saying that they hungered a little bit more and had a little bit less so that Paul could have something. That's what we see in the cross of Christ, this tremendous sacrifice. Loving your neighbor costs. Look at the good Samaritan. I mean, we don't generally think about the what-ifs of this parable, but if he was on the road to Jericho, he was going somewhere. And I hate to burst your bubble, but love is always an inconvenience. Always. If it restrains down to just convenience, then it falls short of what this is. Wherever this man was going, whatever plans it involved, whatever appointments he had, he lays them aside to help. Not only that, but he, he puts himself in danger. That's one of the points that Luther, uh, Martin Luther King preaches in his sermon. He says that what we see here is a dangerous altruism. Now, why does he say that? Because if robbers just jumped this guy and left him for dead, they might still be around. The Jericho Road is not a place where you want to lean over and focus on a body and deal with wounds and leave yourself wide open. Not only that, but it's very possible, you've probably seen it in the movies, maybe this whole thing's a trap. Maybe that man is only there, not actually in pain, but looking like it to slow down people so that they could be robbed. But he takes all of that danger upon himself willingly and fully. Think back to your elementary days. Not every occasion where there was a bully was there an equal and opposite strong guy to stand in the way. Right? Sometimes the person who stood up for the bullied was, was putting themselves in the position of becoming the bullied. That's what love looks like. It's often dangerous. Obviously here, it's not just sacrificial in, in, in these two ways, but it's financially sacrificial. This guy takes a hit at the bank account. He, he takes from his own inventory of oil and wine, which were medicinal in those days, were used to treat wounds, he uh, takes him to an inn and pays for him to be taken care of, and he says, and if he accrues anything else, I'll be back to pay that. In all of these ways, uh, we see sacrifice. Now, what does this look like practically? Let's just take your actual neighbors as an example. One of the things that we see in this parable, but it's not best illustrated here, so I don't want to root it in the text, is, is that loving your neighbor is progressive. What I mean is it's never fulfilled by a single act. There's an act, and that imp act implies another act. It's another way of saying that, that love your neighbor is relational, right? And so it has a beginning, but it doesn't end with its beginning. Unlike pity, where you just hand a check, love often has a next step, and a next step, and a continuation in an interaction. And so I find it helpful 
generally in trying to do what God has called me to, to ask where am I at now and what is the next step? Simply put, we live in a time where, where um, a lot of the inherent cultural aspects of love your neighbor have fallen away. And so I don't mean this as a terrible accusation, as a criticism, but do you know your neighbors? Have you met them? Have you introduced yourself? Have you given them more than a nod as you were both unloading groceries in your driveway? Right? I'm not saying this is not an aha moment so I can slam you now. It's just there's your beginning. That's where it starts. With your coworkers, the question's the same. Where are you at in the process of loving them? What would it look like today to love this person, knowing where they're at? If they're in the midst of a hardship, uh, if you don't really know them that well, sometimes love is investigative. It asks questions. It listens. This intentionality and the fact of process and progression, this idea that you have to start somewhere, here's where it enters in for us as a church collectively, okay? Because it's hard to love your neighbor as an organization, okay? It's not the church as an organization that loves its neighbor, but us as individuals that love our individual neighbors, and us collectively that love our collective neighbors, right? But it never falls into this thing where, well, it's the church's job too. We have to watch out for that as always. Um, we are seeking to press into this deeper at the home group level. Here's what I mean. This year, our home groups are going to select a community of neighbors to love, to walk this out, to be intentional, to continuously ask this question, what does it look like now? What does it look like today? To find our neighbors, to know our neighbors, to serve our neighbors, to love our neighbors. And it has the added benefits of what we learned last week, which is everything God calls us to do, he calls us to do it together. That's what it means to be the church. And so at the level of home group, we're asking you to select your neighbors. And it doesn't have to be a neighbor of need. It doesn't have to be an elderly care facility uh, or, you know, a halfway home. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, impoverished neighbors, but just neighbors, a community and then just come up with a plan as individuals and collectively to press into that community, to love that community, to demonstrate and to show this. And one of the reasons that I want to do this together is because when we learn to do it together, we know how to do it as individuals. And I've discovered this to be the case. Frankly put, I'm a much better pastor because I have a wife. And so I've learned what love has to look like to survive, and it's made me a better lover of people who I'm not married to. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. You work out things in one level, and you see how it applies more broadly. But I want us to remember this morning that even as Jesus tells the parable here, remember the context is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus lays it out and says simply, do these two things, love God fully Love your neighbor as yourself. But even the lawyer himself knows he can't fulfill that. Even the lawyer himself knows he can't live up to it. You see, there's a sense where in Jesus is telling this parable, he's not just trying to get him to behave like the good Samaritan. He's trying to get him to recognize that he is the man on the side of the road. He's the one in need of help. Nothing creates sympathy in you like understanding that you also are one in need. 
And when the Bible constantly points us to the needs out there, it always reminds us of the needs here. That's why, that's why John doesn't say, if, if you turn away the hungry, he doesn't say, you don't love. He says, how can the love of God be in you? He says, our actions towards other evidence the reality of God's love in our own life. Us being a... Um, pouring into other people's lives demonstrates that we're a receptacle being poured into. That's the principle that's being pointed to. The thing is, you cannot love your neighbor enough to qualify for a relationship with God. You've already fallen short of it. You'll continue to. But when you understand God's love for you, that if you will, um, that if you will, that we're the ones needy and dying on the road, left for dead. If you understand that we're desperate for the help of God and then you understand how much that help has been fully and completely available in Jesus Christ, it creates sympathy. Not manufactures it, not fakes it. It just creates it because you see one of the traits of your neighbor, of humanity in general, one of the things that's built into what it means to be human in a fallen world is need. And that without help, all is lost. And then on top of that, you realize that because God took care of things in Jesus Christ, that help is readily available. And so when he says here, wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Don't make the same mistake. Don't do this wanting to justify yourself. But instead, recognizing that you've been forgiven. Instead, recognizing that in your tremendous sense of need, that all we, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way, but the Lord laid our iniquities on his shoulders. When you recognize that we were poor, and Jesus being rich became poor so that we might be rich, when you understand all that God has done for you, the concept of love your neighbor starts to fall into place, not merely as a duty, but a natural next step. But even when it's there, you have to specify. You have to narrow your field. You have to be particular and intentional. You have to ask the questions, who is my neighbor? How can I love them? Let's pray. Father, sometimes I feel like our culture is inevitably headed towards an isolation just unknown in human history where we, we get all our groceries delivered by drones and our only interaction happens in the anonymity of screens and the internet. Uh, and even our families we separate from and, and just move further and further away from one another so that we can be alone. But you say that it's not good that man should be alone. And we're so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful that while we were in need, while we were alone, while we were away, that you went after us, that you showed that intention, that you sought us out in our time of need, bandaged our wounds, cared for us, loved us. I pray, Lord, that you would instill in us this heart that we would be intentional in these things.
Give us eyes to see our neighbors, not merely as a statistic, not even as a bundle of needs, Lord, but as a person formed and created by you, who you love and care for and died for, that we can know and love and serve and share with. I ask that you'd help us as a church to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.